welcome to the March 2021 edition of the Rehab Cast from the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. I'm your host, Dr. Ford Vox of the Shepherd Center in Atlanta. We've got another couple of diverse original research highlights for you in this episode, starting with Dick Tyson and his work translating the most common cardiovascular risk model for general populations to the spinal cord injury population. We've all got our theories, but what do the data show? You're about to find out. Following that, we'll be checking in with Susan Linder to delve into a Cleveland Clinic study of cycling that shows it produces marked benefits in gait speed post-stroke when combined with upper extremity repetitive task practice. First up, Dr. Tyson, thanks for joining us today on the RehabCast. Thank you. We're here to talk about uh, some work that uh, you and your team have done in terms of uh, cardiovascular risk factors in the spinal cord injury population. This is original research you and your team have contributed to the archives. The title is uh, Traditional Cardiovascular Risk Factors Strongly Underestimate the Five-Year Occurrence of Cardiovascular Morbidity and Mortality in Spinal Cord Injured individuals. Obviously, an extremely important topic uh, of the overall health span for spinal cord injured individuals, which is really uh, part of the, the the key goal of spinal cord injury medicine is keeping people as happy and healthy as possible, as functional as possible, despite the severity of these uh, potentially life-changing injuries. Exactly. Uh, and this is a, a major question that the field has had for some time that, that you have, uh, have really started to con- contribute in. Um, but let's start with kind of square one with a little bit about uh, you and your background, the type of research that, that you do. You, you clearly have a special interest uh, in uh, cardiovascular disease in particular. Uh, talk to us about that and, and how you come to this field. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm indeed very much interested in cardiovascular disease and its development, but specifically related to the development of cardiovascular disease in relation to physical activity or inactivity. That's in a broader sense. Uh, what, what my research tries to understand is what, what is it that if you do not perform exercise or you lead a sedentary life or you're bound to a wheelchair, what, what does that do to your body that puts you at increased risk for developing cardiovascular disease? So people with a spinal cord injury are one of those groups that help me to understand this link, but also specifically clearly for those patients to improve the quality of life. So that, that's the basic of my research to, to understand that link. Mm-hmm. Historically, I've been very much interested in the group uh, of people with the spinal cord injury. Um, in fact, my first study ever uh, when I was a PhD student was in uh, people with a spinal cord injury. And what's interesting in that group is that because they are bound to a wheelchair and um, they cannot, well, depending on the level of the lesion, they cannot move the lower limbs um, or the upper limbs. And that has a major impact on the cardiovascular system. And we've described that over the years. And whilst care for people with a spinal cord injury improved and we you know, prevent uh, all these other types of diseases, cardiovascular disease is becoming a major issue for these individuals. 
And that, that was more or less the reason uh, and the background for this study. And it's one of those fascinating types of research questions where uh, everyone has a particular theory and in general shares the, the theory and even provides basic patient advice uh, on that uh, theory, but from which we, we lack the hard data. And that's what this study is about. Yeah, correct. And, and we were in that way very fortunate to benefit from a very big study that was set up uh, now more than 20 years ago in the Netherlands, where they... Uh, registered all the individuals who got a spinal cord injury and were admitted to the various rehab hospitals throughout the Netherlands. And um, everything was recorded in a very precise manner. And that, that really was the key to answer this question. Indeed, uh, in the uh, epidemiological research for so many different medical conditions, uh, the Dutch come up time and again, thanks to that, that kind of continuous type of more unified healthcare system that so many of us are increasingly envious of. Um, and this is yet another one of those questions that can't be answered. There Obviously, there are caveats to this type of data, which you discuss in your study, which we can uh, visit uh, a little bit. Um, but uh, uh, so the, the, the heart of the study really... Uh, tries to look at um, what the Framingham uh, risk calculator can tell us as well about this particular population and whether if we add in perhaps the spinal cord injury level and so forth, can we augment that that information? Uh, tell us a little bit about the, the Framingham study and how it's been uh, utilized, at least for the general population and now explored in, in various subpopulations like this. Well, the Framingham uh, study is actually quite an interesting one that started a very long time ago in a city called Framingham in the US. And uh, the researchers that started this work, um, they, like we did in the Netherlands with uh, our individuals with spinal cord injury, registered all those individuals really well in that town. And they started to follow up. So it takes a lot of time. Uh, for these studies to do. And then over time, people develop cardiovascular disease or risk factors first and cardiovascular disease events. And if you have enough individuals and a longer time follow-up, you can link development of cardiovascular disease to a certain number of risk factors. And Whilst doing that, they came up with a number of key cardiovascular risk factors that we now all know, like the BMI, but also age. Um, gender is a very important one. Um, lipids in the blood. And if you combine all of them individually, they provide some kind of indication of risk for development of future cardiovascular disease. And if you combine them, you come up with a score, in this case, the frame of risk score, that gives you an indication of your five or 10 year risk for a cardiovascular event. Um, that has really contributed to the field of cardiovascular science, cardiology, but the limitations of this are clear because it's a single town in the US. So does that translate to well, first of all, a neighboring city in the US, let alone does it compare to a city in Europe or Asia or Africa. Um, so there are many, many factors that, you know, makes you question whether that from risk score is valid 
in other groups. And the spinal cord risk, uh, the spinal cord group is one of those. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating, maybe kind of scary that that under under ten percent is considered uh, low risk. So if you're kind of you know, I mean that that's uh, uh, that tells you how common cardiovascular disease is in the general population. Uh, and these are a wide variety of of events, various mortality and and death that can occur due to cardiovascular causes. So a lot of traditional risk factors that you would expect uh, with lipid levels and uh, blood pressure and so on. Um, and of course, um, you talk about the fact, um, and you know, we're hyper aware of the fact that these parameters change a lot uh, with spinal cord injury. And one would have to scratch their head a bit. Well, if if now your systolic blood pressure is, is set permanently much lower um, uh, because of this uh, spinal cord injury, how can that now potentially be uh, a useful measure? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. That that was um, more or less the rationale why we started this. We are. Uh, basic hypothesis was that we know that risk increases for cardiovascular events, but individual risk factors do not always change. Indeed, blood pressure actually drops in individuals with a spinal cord injury. And it looks like there is a larger drop in those with tetraplegia versus paraplegia, whilst the tetraplegics have a higher risk for cardiovascular disease. So all a bit counterintuitive. And therefore, we, we started this off with um, a number of questions. And, and, and the key question was clearly was, can the frame of risk score also in this population of individuals with a spinal cord injury predict cardiovascular events? And does it predict it accurately with the right number? I think that starting with the good news is that um, in one way, the framing of risk score still works because if you have a an above average framing risk score for the population of uh, spinal cord injury, you, you still have a higher risk than those with a lower risk score. So, in that sense, the framing of risk score does its job. It discriminates between those with a high risk versus low risk. But what was really surprising to us, and we, we sort of expected it a bit, but not to this extent, that it massively underestimates the true uh, development of cardiovascular disease, where this fairly young group had, on average, only a one and a half, two percent chance of developing a cardiovascular event across the five, six-year follow-up. It was around 10 that's a huge difference. So whilst it correctly discriminates between high and low risk, it underestimates the true risk for cardiovascular events. So it's almost like we need an additional plus factor. You could have the kind of uh, Framingham risk score, you know, plus the SCI fudge factor, for example. Exactly. Just the fact that you have a spinal cord injury put you at higher risk. And we've tried to sort of correct for that. So a uh, spinal cord framing and risk score, so adding the level of the uh, lesion, but that didn't really help. And um, my, my interpretation of that is that just the fact that you have a spinal cord injury and you are restricted with physical activity, that in itself puts you at high risk. Mm-hmm. Of what happens else, because still the framing risk score 
discriminates between high and low risk, the fact that you are in a wheelchair and are restricted in performing physical activity, which is so good for you, this emphasizes that, puts you at higher risk. And I guess in one way you could say, well, then you, we simply, uh, what, what, what then, what can we do? Can we just assume that's a risk factor and that's it? Um, do they need to do more exercise? Well, that's always good. Um, but I think this also indicates that perhaps we should be looking at whether the cutoff values for what we define as hypertension in the general population, I strongly doubt that really fits for individuals with a spinal cord injury. And perhaps the same for statins. Um, perhaps we should be exploring ways that we should lower that cutoff value for statins. And the same with blood pressure. We, we need to proactively deal with this to make sure that the high risk that these individuals have for cardiovascular that should be lowered. And there's so much more that remains to be really known and understood about what it is about the blood pressure risk in that spinal cord injury population. You discussed the fact there there's a wide variety a variation in, in blood pressure uh, with the nature of spinal cord injuries. Certainly, it could spike it at times uh, and uh, with, uh, you know, various visceral events and uh, and so forth. And um, uh, is it something to do perhaps with that with that variability that is then stressful uh, uh, to the heart and vasculature? Absolutely. That's definitely something to consider. And it's, uh, unfortunately, it probably goes beyond just lowering with 10 or 20 millimeters of mercury. Um, mm -hmm. that's, that's a too easy solution. And indeed, the dysreflexia may contribute with the spikes in blood pressure may definitely contribute to, to that or take into account, or maybe that's um, the, the presence of that type of spikes should be prevented rather than arresting uh, blood pressure. Um, unfortunately, it's so much unknown. And I think this just screams out, this, this finding screams out that we need to do more research on this topic, which is really undervalued, understudied topic in spinal cord injury. Yeah. Just even basic questions about, you know, does spinal cord injury equal, okay, well, now you at least take a baby aspirin and, you know, a low dose of Lipitor or something, and let's see if that population does better. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But but with, uh, when you say that, uh, my immediate response is exercise is medicine. Okay, yeah. My take on that is that the inactivity is the, should be the primary goal in, in the rehab Um but I understand also there are uh, also easier ways. Not everybody can perform exercise. It's, it's highly challenging in this population. So I, I appreciate that. And, and thankfully, there are good alternatives in terms of uh, pharmaceutical strategies that can also have an impact on risk. Um, one design question I had for you is... Um, that uh, the study includes both traumatic and non-traumatic spinal cord injury. Obviously, you talk about the fact that people's prior health risk factors and factoring in to the Framingham score and so forth, so maybe it's captured there somewhat. But, I mean, um, I generally think of, on average, the non-traumatic spinal cord injury population is potentially having more health concerns than, than the traumatic, um, and if some distinction could similarly could be made between the two. I don't know if there's enough numbers that, that way or if y'all have done that analysis. Yeah, that, that's a valid point, and uh, we were clearly underpowered to really 
mm-hmm. and that question. Um, in addition to that, you you can also include the question, you know, whether the traumatic or the non-traumatic spinal cord injury was at uh, a young age or an older age where we now also see the somewhat older population also getting a spinal cord injury because of falls. And clearly they already have 60 years of development of, of atherosclerotic plaques, and that sure. really helped um, for obvious reasons. Um, but perhaps that, that's even a more vulnerable group because they have that time to develop the plaques and then suddenly they have a spinal cord injury. And perhaps because of that, their blood pressure drop, and there is no need to start these alternative uh, strategies on risk um, modification. But actually, those that, that is the group that should be carefully uh, checked for and whether they hmm. should start on, on aspirin or whatever drug uh, maybe mm-hmm. I understand you've done some vascular imaging research as well, and there are potential opportunities for that with the spinal cord injury population and analyzing risk. Yes. Um, what, what we see in that sense, in that area, is that we, within days, within weeks, the vasculature adapts to new situation. And in the lower limbs, we see within three weeks that the size of the arteries uh, shrinks to only 70% of what it was. And after those three weeks, it more or less stays like that. And that's just an indication that blood flow to the lower limbs is really low. And we know that blood flow is essential to keep the arteries open. Um, You need to stimulate them. And the structure of the arteries, also around the heart or elsewhere um, do provide valuable information on the status of the cardiovascular system, on the health of it. So that, that there's definitely a rationale to explore directly the health of arteries and perhaps include that to better understand the potential risk for development of future events. Well, I have to ask, uh, given our current uh, context, um, it would seem that uh, a cardiovascular uh, physiology researcher with a special expertise in sedentary um, activity or lack of activity and how that changes our risk might be in special demand in the context of a global pandemic that is keeping people out of work and uh, stuck at computer screens and Zooms like this. <laughs> uh, uh, out of curiosity, have you started to look at some, some COVID-related research in your field? Yes, we have. Um, and related in, in, to the general population, the activity patterns have dropped. And what, what's interesting, and I know that, that between country differences, but what, what, what's interesting is that, um, at least in the Netherlands, a lot of exercise is done at clubs and they're all closed. So everybody's really restricted to just running or cycling. And not everybody likes that. So they just skip it. And initially, you know, they skip it for a few months, at least. That was the idea about a year ago. But they haven't started it up again. And what's also interesting to realise, especially the working population, that a significant amount of our activities is because of the travel from home to work and back. And... Um, going from meeting to another meeting and the walking, taking the stairs, etc. And you miss that. 
because you you just sit here, you go from one Zoom to another, and your activity has really dropped. And that has a huge impact on our health and on our future health. And I can only hope that those who were active will regain their activities once all the restrictions are gone. Um, Mm. And especially those living in a city, we've also examined that, especially those living in a city um, compared to a more rural area, those are especially prone to dropping their activity levels. Well, Dr. Tyson, I think this has been an enlightening conversation, hopefully for our audience as well. Uh, And uh, I thank you for uh, spending some of your Zoom time with us uh, on the rehab cast uh, today. And uh, now you can take a walk around the block. Uh, I will too. Uh, All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Next up, it's Dr. Linder from the Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Linder is uh, an assistant staff member of the Department of Physical Medicine Rehabilitation at Cleveland Clinic. She's a doctor of physical therapy who is also adjunct graduate faculty in the School of Health Sciences at Cleveland State University in Ohio. Dr. Linder and her colleagues at Cleveland Clinic have published in the journal on forced and voluntary aerobic cycling interventions, improving walking capacity in individuals with chronic stroke. Dr. Linder, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So um, a very interesting paper, interesting problem, which which you outlined very effectively just right there in, in the introduction, talking about the fact that we have, you know, few um, uh, efficacious strategies to uh, improve uh, uh, gait dynamics in, in patients. And, and in fact, that some of the things that are uh, perhaps most popular amongst patients and clinicians, uh, uh, exoskeletons and so forth, uh, body weight supported systems have, have a relative paucity of, of evidence. Right. So in, in recent years, despite the initial enthusiasm about those more task-specific types of approaches to gait training, we have found that those haven't always been as effective as we thought that they would be. Yeah. Um, and uh, your study uh, uh, really focuses on uh, you know, uh, task-based therapy and combining that with this uh, uh, cycling therapy in particular and talks about the rationale of cycling to translate to gait. And in particular, you, you talk about the fact that with uh, some earlier published guidelines back in 2010, um, cycling in particular uh, has uh, was showing up as not really um, demonstrating as much evidence as, as we would as we would hope. Um, hence, the opportunity for for your study, uh, which is hoping to to add more evidence uh, to that. Tell us about uh, the background of what had been done previously, and perhaps why you think that uh, cycling therapy uh, has not been shown to be terribly useful in the past. Right. So in the past, they've used more low intensity exercise in cycling interventions. So because people after a stroke have that motor disability, the hemiparesis, they can't exercise at the intensity that we think might be necessary to elicit some of these improvements in gait. And actually, our our findings were a bit serendipitous. It it was an anecdotal finding. We were using the six-minute walk test really to measure a function of cardiac uh, respiratory capacity um, as a submaximal measure. And we saw that the exercises were actually improving in their six minute walk test distance. So 
knowing that typically task specificity was needed to improve walking capacity and locomotor function, this was a surprising finding for us. So we started to investigate, well, my, why might this be happening? So we use forced exercise as one of our modalities. And by definition, what that is, is a motor helps people exercise at a faster rate or cadence in revolutions per minute than they would on their own. So if you think they're spinning on this bike, um, and it's not just the motor passively spinning their legs, they have to contribute and we measure um, their aerobic uh, intensity as well. So we prescribe 60 to 80%. And on average, our participants reach about 60% intensity. And we found improvements in locomotor function. In order to find that 60 to 80%, you're doing a, a pretty uh, detailed physiologic uh, CPX test on an ergometer and uh, looking at... Uh, um, uh, oxygen use and so forth and an EKG and everything. Is that, is that all necessary clinically? So our concern is a lot of these people do have, have cardiovascular comorbidities. And if we look at ACSM guidelines and even American Stroke Association guidelines, uh, an exercise stress test is recommended for people who have comorbidities to make sure that they're safe exercising at these intensive levels. So for our clinical trials, that is still our protocol. Um, we don't ha- we use uh, the ACSM guidelines to make sure that people aren't don't have things like exertion with or or excuse me chest pain with exertion and and undue short mm-hmm. breath. But again, these people are very deconditioned, and a lot of them have have different uh, cardiovascular issues that we feel safer in conducting a stress test initially at baseline. On uh, the the study's uh, inclusion criteria, there's a focus on the upper extremity um, fugal mire. Why use uh, that in particular for enrolling patients in a, in a walking study? That's a great question. So as I had indicated, this study actually looked at improvements in arm function. So our hypothesis mm-hmm. was more looking at the effects of aerobic exercise on brain function and neuroplasticity. So we were using a lower extremity aerobic exercise to try to improve upper extremity motor function and motor recovery following stroke. So one of one of our outcomes was the six-minute walk test as a secondary outcome to look at cardiorespiratory capacity. And it was in this finding that was anecdotal, was a secondary finding that we noticed the the improved locomotor function. So uh, this is a subgroup of a, of a larger study, is that right? It is, right. And this is actually a compilation of two of our clinical trials. I see. Okay. Mm-hmm. That makes more sense then. Okay. Um, and uh, the repetitive uh, task practice the patients were doing, tell us about that and what, and what types of tasks that were involved. So again, because the primary aim of the function of the study was to improve upper limb function, the repetitive task practice was related to the upper limb. So it was mm-hmm. it was based on the work done by Catherine Lang and and Birkenmeyer and such, where we're just doing repetitive tasks with the upper limb over a course of forty five minutes. Um, we follow we we start the intervention with aerobic exercise. So either forced rate, as I defined with the motor assisted cadence or voluntary rate where people are just cycling on their own, but still at the same aerobic intensity. And we were using that to prime the brain to improve the motor learning associated with the motor task practice. So that was our intervention paradigm. Um, and, and ultimately, you, you, you again, you found that whether forced or voluntary, um, 
uh, uh, patients uh, did improve with this aspect of the larger study, the six-minute walk test. Um, but there was some some differences in, in the two. Can you speculate, tell us what that was and speculate as to why that is? Yeah, so we did see, um, it didn't reach statistical significance, but we saw a trend toward improved um, locomotor function in the forced exercise group, but the voluntary exercise group still made made significant improvements as well. Our control group did not, and they did not participate in any cycling at all. So like I'd mentioned prior to, to the study, we really thought, and I thought that with motor learning, task specificity was really important. So I was surprised that the cycling intervention could actually improve, improve locomotor function. But when you look at cycling, it still has that same cyclical movement, similar to gait, and patients have to rapidly accelerate and decelerate with their limbs. So they have to activate their their extensors and then relax their extensors to allow for that pedaling movement to occur. And this is actually, to some degree, similar to the stance and swing phases of gait, where patients have to rapidly activate their agonists and and then relax those agonists to allow for flexion to occur during swing phase. So there might be some carryover of the cycling activity. And as far as rate goes, if you look at the cadence, we were looking at really about 80 RPMs, and patients do can walk with that type of cadence as well. So it might be that the faster cadence just trained that rapid acceleration and deceleration. Is it an important concept to the study that the fact that, I mean, working on the walking itself uh, is perhaps not generating enough aerobic activity and the cycling allows you more efficiently to get there, to get to that 60 to 80 percent of the uh, the heart rate that you want? Yes. And there's there's certainly a, um, so when we looked at our stress test, we do maximal exertion stress tests on a cycle ergometer. So, and Patients do reach that 1.1 RER, so we know that we are achieving maximal exertion. During the six-minute walk test, however, when we compared their maximal heart rates, it was just about 65% of what they achieved during cycle ergometry. So we know that the six-minute walk test isn't truly a maximal exertion. It's probably more submaximal, which makes sense because the patients can't achieve that type of intensity while walking since they have the limitations due to their stroke. Um, and the fact that this is part of a larger study answers another question that I had, which is about the variability in the baseline walking performance. You have people ranging from most people were community ambulators. There were some who were just home or limited, but they were coming from that larger upper extremity study. If it had just been focused on the uh, the walking per se, probably would have been inclined to include a group that was all at the similar level. Is that right? Exactly. And we do have some some studies that are in progress now that are looking at that. And we're looking at a biomechanical gait analysis as well to have uh, more than just these rudimentary types of outcomes associated with gait. But we'd like to see what's occurring with the hip joint angle and the knee joint angle and and the kinematics associated with gait. Well, um, uh, how does the study fit in with the other types of work that you're doing? Can you tell us about some of the other uh, research that you've been involved in different patient populations or other uh, uh, studies that are that are similar to different to this one? Sure. So this work started, um, and I worked in Dr. Jay Albert's lab, and, and a lot of his work is in Parkinson's disease and the effects of cycling on, on the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. So I was involved mm-hmm. in some of those studies early on when I joined the lab. 
And there, again, we found that cadence seemed to be the exercise variable that was most predictive of improvements. And in this case, it was an upper limb function. So it improved things like tremor and motor control of the upper limb. So again, that's not intuitive. And that did not include the uh, any component of upper limb training like we are including in the stroke studies. So again, that's not necessarily intuitive that a lower extremity exercise intervention would improve upper limb function. So um, he conducted some studies looking at MRI, um, functional MRI, and found in increased connectivity in high rate cycling that were actually comparable to um, patients' responses when they were on levodopa. And this was, so the, the, the scans were when they were off medications compared to on medication. And it was also um, comparable compared to um, when people were just cycling at their voluntary rate, they didn't have the same type of activation. So this implies that there might be something occurring with this high rate cycling at, at the level of the central nervous system. And this led to our hypothesis that potentially we could use this in stroke as well to prime the brain to improve the motor recovery associated with task practice. Very good. And, and certainly, I guess, cycling itself is, is a form of mass practice. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of uh, literally repetition of, of the same uh, thing and very would be very challenging to attempt to replicate um, that much uh, cadence or speed of activity with any type of exoskeleton type of device or body weight supported device and so forth. So again, it's reminding us of the importance of uh, including this uh, this uh, cycling therapy literally in um, in stroke uh, uh, post stroke rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, important work. And uh, tell us what what uh, do you have next on tap and in, in this area. So that's a great question. So like I mentioned, in the stroke population, we are looking to look at more of the biomechanics to look at the, the kinematics and the kinetic variables that might be associated with this. We're also looking potentially at EEG to understand the mechanism associated with these changes. And, and lastly, we're potentially looking at this in a population of patients with MS to see if we have patients with mild to moderate gait dysfunction due to multiple sclerosis, can this cycling intervention that's assisted help them, again, get that repetition and get that intensity of exercise that would be difficult for them to achieve voluntarily? And there are so many uh, more questions, I'm sure, to, to still be asked regarding this upper extremity and lower extremity uh, connection. Um, I'm reminded, speaking to you, of, of a paper that, that discussed uh, improvements in gait kinematics following upper extremity Botox, for example. I mean, you're not even, you know, you're not injecting the, the leg, but, but yet um, uh, by uh, loosening up that paretic arm, uh, you know, we're getting, you know, improvement in things like the six-minute uh, walk test and so forth. So um, whether, you know, upper extremity exercise and those uh, perhaps augmenting neuroplastic connections or just brain connectivity and so forth or physical changes um, uh, in the in the movement of the upper body, potentially helping the lower body, uh, there, there are many ways in which the two can be interconnected. Absolutely. We're seeing more and more the evidence of this global effect of, of intensive exercise training. And like you had mentioned, I think it's really important for us in the rehab setting to include this incorporated. So one of my 
my goals would be to have this be reimbursable mm-hmm. because currently aerobic exercise training is not reimbursed by Medicare and many insurance companies as a skilled therapy. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much for your time today. I think this is a, a good summary of the paper. I encourage people to actually turn to the pages of the journal and get all the, the details as well. Well, Dr. Linder from the Cleveland Clinic, thank you for your time today joining us on the Rehab Cast. Excellent. Thank you for your time. That'll be a wrap for the March 2021 Rehab Cast. This is also your reminder that the 2021 ACRM Conference is September 26th through 29th. It's going to take place virtually, of course, but pandemic willing and if safe to do so, we will have an in-person component in Dallas. Now, if you enjoyed this podcast, please click on your podcast share button and send it to some colleagues.